Welcome to Reconciled Church Miami, Pastor Aldo Leon. We, we've been having a series on what it means to say we're Reformed. So every church has a flavor. So, you know, there's Baptist churches, and there's Pentecostal churches, and then there's non-denominational churches. And so our flavor is Reformed. So what does that mean? And we've been unpacking what that means biblically. And one thing that we said is to be Reformed is it means we believe in the solas. So what does that mean? That we believe God saves us. God does everything for his glory alone, not because of us. And because God is all about his own glory, salvation is of grace alone, meaning God doesn't begin to save us or want to save us because he sees something in us. God saves us all of grace. So because salvation is all of God's glory and all of his grace, it's only accomplished in Christ's works alone, not ours. And because salvation is by God's glory alone, of grace alone, in Christ alone, it can only be received by faith. How do we get this unprovoked grace that is given us in Christ? Through trust. Not through working, not through willing, not through wanting, but through trusting what Christ did. The last part of these ideas that are so important to preserve in the gospel, I was all right, how do we trust Christ alone. And that brought us to our last sola, which is scripture alone. If we're going to trust Christ rightly and see Christ rightly and understand grace rightly, then we need to look to this book and nothing else as our primary source of understanding. And so we unpacked that for us to trust Christ and be saved by Christ all by him and not us we must be devoted to listening to what God says in this book and not listen to ourselves. But then I, 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 I got I to gotta build on that. So, so what happens when someone says, all right, I believe in the Bible alone as my source of understanding for how I can be saved and relate to God. I'm there. But we have totally different viewpoints of that same scripture. Kind of like me and my wife we have a different way of viewing reality. Um, I'm not picking on her, so don't laugh, all right? So I see a mess in the room. And what I see is, man, me and my kids really had fun. Like, this was a quality moment. My wife sees the same room, and she's like, this is a disaster. Two entirely different understandings of the same Moment. So, so my question is, when we say it's all of God's words alone, how do we rightly understand God's word so we don't use God's word to believe things that God's word's not saying? This is why I had a two-part to this. So, so, so the first part of my uh, scripture alone was how scripture does what it does, what it does, and this is the third part, which is where God's word does what it does. Where does God's word speak to us rightly? So we're going to understand how to understand God's word so we can hear God's word. Follow me? So how, do, how, how, does, how does scripture speak to us? Well, it speaks to us firstly in its context. By context, I mean just the, 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 the conversation around the words that God uses. So that, so let me give you a text to start. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourself approved by God, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth. I'm going to illustrate this. Somebody, somebody tell me a sentence right now. Anyone, tell me something. No. Jesus died for you? Oh, so you're going to go to the game? You're going to go to the game tomorrow? You're going to go to the game tomorrow? That, that's what you're saying? No. But I, that's what I think you're saying. Let me get, get another example. Give me, some, someone tell me another sentence. Cars move? Huh? Oh, so you think the car is magenta. Right? It's, it's silver. But that's what I think. So... so but isn't it isn't what I think what matters? No, what you say and what you mean matters. If I don't interpret what you're saying in light of what you meant to say, what you just said means absolutely nothing. 
So we need to understand what you said, why you said it, not what I think you said, right? So what I'm going to do is, this is not a normal Bible, this is not a normal sermon. I'm going to kill you guys with a bunch of scripture examples to show you how in a small context we interpret the Bible and how we don't. So if you're like, man, like that was a lot of Bible verses, I can't, I can't deal with that. It's not normally like this, okay? So check this out. Let me give you an example. Hebrews 12, 28 says this. By it, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So people take that verse. You know what they do? God is a consuming fire, so you better honor him and worship him or God's going to kill you. Okay, let's read the context. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us hold on to grace. By it, by what? God's unconditional grace, a kingdom that can't be shaken because Christ was shaken for you so you don't have to ever do anything to have it. By that, hold on to that, we may have served God acceptably. For our God is a consuming fire. So the point of that passage is not be scared and do something great because God will consume you. Is God has done something great so you can trust in it and not have to worry about what you do. So by that, you can worship God. That's the point of the context. But we see that phrase, and the, and the legalist gets all excited, like, yo, man, God's going to shish kebab you if you ain't right. And that's not even the point of the text. The point of the text is, God has shish kebab Christ in your place for your sins, so hold on to that. I mean, so I'm, I'm going to give you lots of examples. Here, here's, here's, here's one that you're going to probably like be like, man, like, I, I've heard that a million times. So Luke 21.1, this is the widow's might. He looked up and saw the rich dropping their offerings into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow dropping in two tiny coins. Um, I tell you the truth, she said, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for she, all these people have put in their gifts out of their surplus, but she had her, out of her poverty has put all she had to live on. So this lady, she gave her offering, and she was going to starve to death that same day. And people use that as... Motivation for giving. What's the context of that passage? What is going on in this passage that Jesus comments on? A, a, a bunch of people who are giving a little bit of money who are rich and some woman giving everything and she's going to die in a few hours. What is the context? Well, the verse before says, Beware the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who love greetings in the marketplace, the front seats of synagogues, and places of honor at the banquets. They devour widows' houses. They devour widows' This is an example of a widow they're devouring. Right after that verse. And, and they say long prayers for, for show. These will receive greater punishment. What is the verse right after the widow's might? Some were talking about the temple complex. It's like, man, this temple where all this stuff was going on, the widow gave her money, isn't this great? And how it's adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God. He said, you see all these stones? There's days coming that not one stone will be left. It'll be thrown down. This whole religious system is going to be destroyed because it sucks. So what we see in the widow's might is a commentary on a broken, corrupt system that takes advantage of people to the point where they think that they need to give the last amount of pennies they have to survive just to be with God, and the people that have lots of money don't even give it. Don't you dare tell a Christian that they should give the last dollar they have and then die and say that's godly giving. No, it's not. Scripture says you give according to what you have, not what you don't have. That's not a, a text for tithing. It's a description of a tragedy and a corrupt system that takes advantage of people. And Jesus just comments on it. Context. Context. Another text, Romans 6 1. Y'all should be amening that, by the way. You, you've heard that a million times, and you're like, you didn't think about it. The pastor's telling me that I should, right now, I should give all my money for rent and get kicked out. No, you shouldn't. That's not the text for that. We got other texts for that. So, anyways, Romans 6 1. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may multiply? How do people, people, people hear that text 
and they say, oh, you know what? No, we shouldn't. We should do this. We should do that. We should do this. We should do that. No, we shouldn't continue in sin. So, so the answer to should we be bad because of grace is a bunch of do, 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 do. But look what Paul says after he makes that statement. Context. Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Are you unaware that all of us were ba- who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him in the baptism to death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. What did Paul just say? You shouldn't live sinful because of grace because grace is awesome. So he says, no, man, Christ died and you died with Christ and your old life was put away and all of your sins were put away and you were raised with Christ. So Paul's answer to should we be bad because of grace is more grace. Not to whip people with a law lecture. Context. Here's another one. Uh, Luke ten thirty six. Um, which one of these, this is, this is a good Samaritan. Which one of these do you think proved to be neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed mercy to him. Jesus then said, go and do the same. So how do people often interpret this text? This is a text for us to go and be the good Samaritan, right? Is that what Jesus, is that the point of what Jesus is saying? Well, let's read the context. Listen to, listen to the conversation. Luke, 20, Luke 10, 25. Just then, an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So this person who, who Jesus is spoken to said, Hey, what do I got to do to be saved, Jesus? What is written in the law? He asked him. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus told him. Do this, and you will live. So this guy is saying, I want to do things to be saved. And Jesus says, all right, keep the law. But wanting to justify himself, he asks him, who is my neighbor? So what is the point of this conversation? Jesus gives us a story of the, of the Good Samaritan to show us about God's love for us, to show us that we can't love God enough, can't be good enough, can't do anything to save ourselves, and we need to be saved by someone loving us in spite of us. That's the whole point of the conversation. Now, are you saying like we shouldn't love people and help people? And I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is the whole point of that conversation is that you can't love God. You can't do anything. You can't love your neighbor. Jesus must love you in spite of you. So believe in him. The whole point. You follow me? All right. There's a few more. Here's, a, here's an interesting text. Philippians 2.6. It's talking about Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped to his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself. How do people interpret that text oftentimes? Oh, Jesus stopped being God. He emptied himself. He set aside his divine attributes, and then he lived on earth. But listen to what the broader context is saying. He emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men, and when he came as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So how did he empty himself? He emptied himself by adding something. What did he add? He added true humanity to him, his deity, and he lived like a servant slave and died a horrendous death on the cross for sins. The whole point of that text is not that Jesus emptied something of his, of his divine nature, but that he became you so that he could live for you And in living for you, he could replace you. And then in dying for you, he can save you. So how did he empty himself? By adding you so he can redeem you. That's the conversation. Let me give you uh, three more. You want three more or two more? All right. Psalm 59 says this. For every forest of the mind, for every animal of the forest is mine, the cattle of a thousand hills. How is this? Verse often used. God, can you give us a new, a, new, a new house? Can you give us a new building? Can you give us, you know, because you own a cattle of a thousand hills, right? Come on, please tell me you've heard that used that way. Okay, what is the conversation? Listen, I will not accept a bull from your household or a male goat from your pens, 
For every animal of the forest is mine, a cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and all the creatures are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. And the world and everything is mine. The whole point of that is God saying, I don't need nothing from you. So stop trying to give me something to be saved. Just receive from me. The point is not ask God for great things because he owns great things. Though you should ask God for things. I'm not saying you shouldn't. But the whole point of that verse is God is saying, I don't need stuff from you. You need me. So trust me. Uh, here, I'll give you two more examples. Um, now, for the person who, this, this is 1 Corinthians 14. For the person who speaks another language is not speaking to man but to God since no one understands him. However, he speaks mysteries in the spirit. But the person who prophesies speaks to people for edification, encouragement, and consolation. The person who speaks in another language, builds himself up. So I, I've often heard this text interpreted that um, you speak in languages to make yourself feel good by yourself. Because it says in the verse, the person who speaks another language builds himself up. Make sense? So why do you speak in you know, tongues and languages by yourself for your own benefit? Because it, makes, it builds you up. Is that what Paul is saying? Let's listen to the earlier part of the context. Chapter 12, a few verses before. Now there's a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are a variety of service, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but the same God who empowers all them and everyone. Listen. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. So why does God give you a spiritual gift? So you can benefit your brother. So when Paul says, you who speak a language that no one understands, you're just making yourself look good. That's not good. When you do spiritual things, they should make other Christians feel good about Jesus. And when you just do it and no one gets what you're doing, you're just making yourself built up. It's not a good thing. You see the context? So Paul is saying, when you do spiritual things, make sure that people understand that it's about Jesus and they could understand Jesus in them. Otherwise, it just makes you look good and that's not the point of the church. We're not here to make each other look good. We're here to serve and love one another. The point of me preaching here is not for you to be like, wow, that's a great preacher. The point of me preaching here is, wow, Jesus is great. I can know him. The second it becomes just about us looking good, it's not a spiritual gift. So Paul says, here, here, here's one more. Uh, I love this text because I, I just, I just, I just, when, when people bring this text to me, I'm like, I, I'm, I'm going I'm to get you. So first, Second Peter 1.5, listen to this. Second Peter 1.5, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness. And then verse 10 says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to conserve your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. So people say, they use this verse where, where Peter says, add this to this to this. If you do these things, you'll confirm your calling and election. So basically say, hey, you can't feel good only about Jesus works for you. You got to feel good and have confidence before God based upon Jesus works and yours. And they use that text. Would you like me to read the whole context? Okay. Look at verse 9. For the person who lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. You see what the guy's problem is? What's his problem? He forgot about the amazing, cleansing, sanctifying grace that he has in Christ. His issue is he's taken his eyes off the work of Christ, which saved him, and now he's looking at himself, and now he's worldly. So Peter's point is the gospel is enough. Not these things added to the gospel is enough. That's his point. So, beloved, listen. We need to understand Scripture in its context because we can't be the guy. You know how the guy is when, when a woman's talking? How's the guy when the woman's talking? You tune in and you tune out in the conversation, right? Yeah, you do, Kevin. When you tune in and you tune out in the, in the conversation with the lady, you miss what she's telling you. 
When we don't listen to the full conversation of God speaking to us in his word, and we tune in, tune out, and pick a phrase here out of context, we don't get what he's saying. And we want to get what he's saying, right? We want God to speak to us, so we can't be the guy. You've got to be the girl who listens to every word you say, and she analyzes every word you say, and she holds you accountable. we got to listen to God speaking that way. Okay? So... It's alone in its context, but it's also alone, listen, in its interpretive totality. What I mean is not just the small context, but the big circle. So there's a small circle right around where you're reading, and then there's the big circle, which is the whole Bible. The big circle is the whole Bible. Let me read 2 Timothy 3. It says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe. You know those who taught you, and you know that from childhood, listen, you know the sacred scriptures the whole Bible, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ. So he's saying, Timothy, understand the word in light of the whole word. Another text, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching. What, what is all scripture? Is it Genesis? Is it Leviticus? How about Song of Solomon? All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching. And, and, and listen, let me give an example. So you talk, to, you talk to a guy a few months before, and he says, I, I don't like to be friends with white people. And then you say, Joe Smo doesn't like being friends with white people. And then six months later, Joe Smo says, man, I, I don't like being friends with white people, but it's because of something stupid and sinful in me, and Jesus has rescued me from that. So this is all a part of you know, Joe Schmo's life, but you just listen to what Joe Schmo said three or four months ago, six months ago, and then you say Joe Schmo does not like hanging with white people. There's a problem with that, right? We do that with the Bible. You know what we do with the Bible? We, we, we treat the Bible kind of like fortune cookie scripture. So I just read the red letters where, where Jesus actually speaks, and that's what I listen to. Or I just read the New Testament. And I don't listen to the Old Testament. Or I just, you know, I, but, but, but what God is saying is that if we're going to understand the word, beloved, we've got to understand the whole book because the whole book is God's words and they all relate to each other. So if we understand something over here that's not connected with something over here, we're missing it. You want to give me some, I'm going to give you some examples of this. Bear with me. Like I said, this is, this is Bible study-ish kind of sermon. So check this out. 1 John 1, 9 says this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You know how people read that? Unless you say sorry, your forgiveness is, it it needs to start over. So right now you sinned. So now your forgiveness calculator has kind of gone back. So say sorry. And after you say sorry, you'll be forgiven again. And the calculator and the clock starts over. You see what I'm saying? You, see, you understand what I'm saying? So you're forgiven if you repent and, and whatnot. But, but let me read other texts in Scripture that help us understand this. John 1.21 says this. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What does the Lamb of God do? All of them? Okay. Um, I'll agree with you. I agree. How about Colossians 1.14? We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins in him. What do we have in Christ? The forgiveness of sins. Do you have forgiveness when you trust in Jesus in full or no? So when John says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, what he's saying is that we experience ongoing forgiveness as we trust Jesus. Not that the forgiveness clock starts over and over and over. That's what he's saying in light of the rest of Scripture. You follow me? All right, here's another, here's another text. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. So what if you do that text? If you're not baptized by water, you're not saved. So until you have water on your skin, you're not saved. Correct? That's the Church of Christ. They, they, 
the, that denomination, that's their precision. Is, but let's, let's, okay, what's, what's the whole book? What does the whole context of the whole Bible say? Let me read another text. Baptism, second, first Peter 3.21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Peter's saying, you're not saved because you got splashed with water. You're, you're saved because you trusted in the significance of that sign, which means that you believe that you have been applied with the wonderful work of Christ, which saves wonderful rebels by his wonderful death. That's what, the, what, what Peter's saying. So when, when, when Peter in Acts says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, what he's saying is, there, believe what your baptism means, and you'll be saved. Not believe that water saves you, but believe in the significance of your baptism. You follow me? Well, why are you saying that? Because I'm reading every text of Scripture with the whole of Scripture, so I don't make up Scripture as I read Scripture. Follow me? So I'll give you a, I'll give you a, let me see. I'll give you a few more examples. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. How do Christians use that verse? I'm a Christian. Don't struggle with pornography no more. Don't struggle with drugs no more. Don't struggle with sin no more because I'm a new creation. Is that what Paul is saying? Well, let me read another text. Listen. <laughs> Romans seven fifteen. This is Paul, same person. For I don't understand my own actions. For I don't do what I want to do, but I do the thing I hate. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, I agree with the law. It's good. So it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that's in my flesh. For I have desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Are you guys there? I have desire to do right, but not the ability to carry it out. So I find there's a, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, being, but I see my members waging war, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank my Lord through Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to be a new creation? It means that now you're coming to grips with how wretched you are, how sinful you are, and how much you need Jesus throughout your whole life. So to be a Christian and a new creation is now, before you used to make excuses for your sins, you used to blame everybody else for your sins. Now, as you see ongoing sin in your life, you're saying, my hope and my confidence is Jesus wiping them away and giving me hope in him, and I no longer hope in me. That's what to be a new creation means. That a new Christian come to me, he's like, man, like, I've been a Christian for like two weeks. Man, I, 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 is all this stuff going to go away? I'm like, no. Jesus is just going to come in there and invade it over and over and over again, and he's going to bring grace and gospel and cleansing in your mess, but it's not going to stop being messy. So we can't read, if anyone's in Christ's new creation, as some sort of like, peace out, my sinful me, now all the floating angel me. No, no, no. No, no, no. Uh, let me give you, uh, let me see. Let me give you a few more examples. And this, this is going slower because I'm going a lot slower than normal. So uh, John 14, 12 says, I assure you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do and will do even greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. So I, I was talking to a guy um, at, at a fair recently, and he, he cited this verse to tell me that he's going to do greater works than Jesus or more works than Jesus. He's going to raise people from the dead, and he's going to walk on water, and he's been you know, doing all this stuff. Is that a proper understanding of that verse? Well, let me show you other texts of Scripture which help me understand what these greater works are. Mark 2, 5. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. So there's this paralyzed guy. Jesus tells him his sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes are sitting there thinking to themselves, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right away, Jesus understood in his spirit they were thinking like this with themselves. Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? What's easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your mat and walk? Listen, listen to this verse. 
But so you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the paralytic, I tell you, pick up your mat and go home. Did you catch that? Jesus is saying, I, I am telling the paralytic to stand up so you know that I have the power to forgive you of sin. That's the point. I am showing you I have power over paralysis to show you I have power to save you from your sin, from hell, from the devil. That's the point of the miracle. The point of the miracle is not that you can do this too. So what are these greater works that Jesus says we're going to do? When Jesus was alive, there were very few people that came to faith. When Jesus went back to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit Tons of people got raised from the dead and from sin and death and hell and got transferred into the kingdom. That are, those are the greater works that the church is doing. Why? Because the whole point of Jesus' works were to attest to him being the redeemer. Which is why, you know, when Jesus, when Jesus, when, remember when he created the bread? And they're following around like, yo, where's the bread at, Jesus? And he's like, the point of the bread was to tell you that I am the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world through my flesh, not that I can be your bread guru. It's the point. Context, context of the whole scriptures. Let me uh, give you, let me see. Let me give you one more. One more. John 14, 28. You have heard me tell you I'm going away and I'm coming to you. If you love me, you would rejoice that I'm going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. You hear that? Jesus just said in John 14, 28, that the Father is greater than him. What does Jehovah's Witness say? Hey, uh, uh, you Christians don't know the Bible. Look, look at the Bible. Oh, okay, that solves it. I understand that statement with that microscope. So what did Jesus say And Philippians 2, have this mind of yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who existed in the form of God, did not consider equality of God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. So when Jesus says the Father is greater than I, he's talking about his humility and humiliation as going from being God who rules all to being servant who serves all like a scumbag for us. So Jesus is saying, look, you should be happy that I'm going to go back to my, orig- my, my, my place because right now I am servant. I am rejected one. I am despised one. I am hungry one because I emptied myself and put me in this place of humility and humiliation, but I'm going back. That's the whole point of that text. Not that God the Father has some sort of greater status or nature than Jesus. You see? So we must understand every verse of Scripture in light of all of Scripture. Otherwise, fortune cookie Christianity pops up verses apart from other verses, and we understand things that God never said. Understand, beloved? So God is speaking in a whole book. So firstly, we need to understand the small context. Secondly, we understand the context of the whole Bible. Thirdly, we need to understand The Bible's redemptive totality. The Bible's redemptive totality. I'm going to explain what I mean by that. Let me read a text for you. 2 Corinthians 3 says this. Therefore, having such hope, we use great boldness. We're not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so the Israelites could not stare at the end of what was fading away, but their minds were closed. For to this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains. It's not lifted because it's set aside only in Christ. Even this day, whenever Moses read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So Paul is saying, if you don't see Jesus in the scriptures, you are blind. And so back in the day, people, back in the day, I should say back in the day and now, in the time of the Reformation and now, people would see the Bible, they would see commands, they would see events, they would see people, and they would just see those things, and not see its connection to Jesus Christ. But what did Jesus Christ say to the Pharisees who interpreted the Bible that way? He says, you search the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, but these are those that testify about me. Meaning that if you don't see Christ as the center of the scriptures, you don't get the scriptures. Let me, let me show you something. Let me give you an example. 
Um, so Leviticus 23, 4 says, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, holy conversations that you proclaim. The Lord's Passover on the, on the day of the 11 bread. Seven days you'll eat unleavened bread. You will have a holy convocation. Seven days, seven days. So people read those festivals. Have, have you been in a place where they force Christians to observe the, the Old Testament festivals? You ever been in a place like that? They're, they're all over the place. They say, it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. We believe it's in the Bible, so we make you observe all the Jewish festivals. Okay? But what does the whole Bible in light of Christ as the center say? Listen. Colossians 2.16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to festivals and new moons or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. The substance is Christ. So what was the point of all these festivals in the Old Testament? To point to Christ. So now that Christ has come, they have served their purposes. You don't need to observe them anymore. And Jesus and, and Paul is saying, don't do that. So, so check this out. How do we understand Moses? How do we understand Moses coming down from the mountain and coming back down with the law? I hear people say, oh, Mo, you know, we understand Moses. We got to go up to the mountain like Moses. And we got to get the law like Moses. No, no, no. Moses' story is to tell us that Jesus Christ ascended the, he ascended the mountain, not of Sinai, but the Sinai of the, the, the mountain of the cross, the mountain of Golgotha, and he kept God's law. He died for our law breaking, and he comes down from the mountain, not proclaiming us the commandments that will give us life, but proclaiming us the gospel which gives us life by faith. That's the whole point of Moses. What about David? What is the point of David? Well, you know, David slaughtered, he had the stone and he knocked down his Goliath. So the point of David is you got to take your stones and knock down your Goliaths. No, it's not. David points to the greater David who in him living our life and dying our death on the cross conquered our Goliath, sin, death, and hell so that we by his defeat and his conquering can share in his victory. That's the whole point of David. Or what about, or what about uh, Aaron? What's the point of Aaron? Aaron is the priest who points to Christ being our priest who would not make offering to save us but would offer himself and then go back to heaven and be our priest and representative. That's the whole point of Aaron. You want some more figures? How about Abraham and Noah? Abraham left his country to go to a place he didn't go. So the story about Abraham is about me taking risk and going to a new place and moving to Ohio to get a new job. No, no, no. Abraham is all about Jesus, the Son of God, leaving his home of heaven and going into the wasteland of this earth to rescue us by his work. That's the whole point of Abraham. Or Noah. What's Noah? I tell you what, it's not about an ark that we paint in Sunday school. Noah is about how Noah enters in this instrument of death and entering into this big, huge coffin that goes through the water of judgment. Those who are attached to him are then brought through the waters of judgment into a new creation. Our greater Noah went through a greater instrument of death, which was the wood of not of the boat, but a wood of the cross. And the waters of judgment were poured out on Christ on the cross. And he brings those attached to him into a new creation. That's the point of Noah. Not why don't you go build something for Jesus, paint something for Jesus. It's, it's about him or Jacob. So, oh, you know, Jacob, you gotta, we got to wrestle with God to get our blessing. Really? You wrestle with God to get your blessing and he'll break you to pieces. What's the point of Jacob's story? The point is, is that our greater Jacob wrestled with God and God struck, not his hip, but struck him down in our place on the cross. So in Jesus wrestling with his father and being struck down by his father, we can receive a blessing because Jesus is our Jacob. The whole point of the bread in the wilderness and how bread comes down from heaven is to tell us that Jesus Christ himself is our bread who satisfies us with his wonderful work for us. The whole point of all the water and the living waters is to show us that Jesus Christ himself is the one who satisfies our souls and gives us life by virtue of his life for us and death for us. The whole point of every text of the Bible is Christ. And if you hear sermons that don't have Christ as the main point, you have not heard a sermon. Yeah. 
If people are preaching sermons that say, hey, the point of this is that you should love God. And the point of this is that you should do this. And the point of this is that you can be this. You have not heard a Christian sermon. A Christian sermon, wherever it is, it's always going back to that central figure where everything in the Bible, every story, every event, even a stinking snake on the pole. I mean, Moses puts this snake on the pole, and they look at the snake, and these people that are dying, they're saved. And, 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 and John says, well, Jesus and John says, I am the serpent lifted up in the wilderness so that when you look at Christ becoming sin for us, taking on our evil, you by looking to him and not looking at yourself are saved from the curse of death and hell and sin by virtue of just looking at him lifted up. That's the whole point. And beloved, if we are not seeing Christ as the subject, as the center, as the point, we're not reading the Bible. Right? We're not. He says, everything's about me. Nothing is not about me. I am the main actor. You know, it's kind of like this. I, I, I won't wait too long on that point. And I have to finish. Um, so listen, you know, you know what sign, when you're going to visit a loved one, what do signs do? Signs take you to be your loved one, right? That's the point of signs. Can you imagine if you're going to see your loved one who's far away and you said, you know what, I think I'm going to pull over. And I'm going to pull up all these signs, and I'm just going to, you know, get a motel and lay with these signs. Why would you ever do that? Why would you ever get a motel to hang out or, or, or get, a, get a resort to hang out and spend quality time and have coffee with the signs that we're telling you to go to meet somebody? It's silly, right? So Jesus is saying, look. All the Bible and all these signs pointing to me. So let everything in Scripture take you to me. Don't go and have relationships with signs because that's not the point. Not the point. They bring me to someone. They are not the thing. So I have two more points, three more main points. It alone, so it alone in its redemptive totality. So we need the whole Bible where Christ Work is the center. We're always going there. We're always seeing that. Also, in its redemptive finality, redemptive finality. Hebrews 1.1 says this. Listen to me. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets, and in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. You see, the author of Hebrews is saying, God, Jesus Christ's work is God's final word to humanity. Let me read another text. Ephesians 2, 20. So you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ is a cornerstone. So what is the church built on? The once-for-all foundational truth of Jesus Christ laid forth by the apostles. One more text. John 15, 26. When the counselor comes, the one I send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father... He will testify about me. So who is the Spirit coming to talk to us about? Say it. He will testify about me. All right, I'm setting y'all up. <laughs> so, so here's the thing. In the time of the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church and, I mean, the Anabaptists and all these people, they had all these new revelations and all these new things that God was telling his people and all this new stuff and the reformers were like, listen, if the whole Bible was pointed to Jesus and Jesus' work is God's final word, I don't need you to tell me no new revelations about all these doctrines and things. If Jesus is God's final word, then I need to hear God's final word to my heart today because of God's final word in Christ. No thank you for all these extra new revelations. Why do I need new revelations? Because I have the scriptures that would tell me about Christ. And it's very similar today, Right? Everyone wants to tell me something. Everyone wants, to tell, everyone wants to tell me something about my life. And everyone wants to tell me something about my future. And everyone wants to tell me something about this and all that. But the Bible, beloved, is not God's 
ongoing word about all these details and like where you're gonna, who you're going to get married to and where you're going to live and all this. But it's God's final word that you are secure in Christ Jesus. That's the point. Um, and so, you know, a lot of times it, it looks like this. You know, people like, they think that God is telling them all these things about their life and all these things about what they can do. And God is like, listen, my purpose is to reveal to you that Christ's life, Christ's death, Christ's love is greater and more important than the details of your life. That's my point of speaking to you. Everyone wants some secret revelation from God because me having secrets and no one else has makes me feel special. And God's like, You don't need to feel special because you got secrets. You are special because God has pronounced you perfectly righteous in Christ because he obeyed for you as a sinner apart from anything you've ever done. And he died for every ugly, disgusting thing you've ever thought, said, or done on the cross. And he was resurrected for you. You're special because God's word has declared you to be in Christ. Not because you have ongoing secrets. And so one super important, significant thing is for us realizing that God's declaration about who we are in Christ and what he's done with Christ is God's final word. God wants you to know that. There's nothing else to know. You don't even know anything else. Which is why, like, people are in heaven and and they're celebrating and, and now they're perfect and they have perfect minds. And what are they singing about? Worthy is a lamb who was slain to receive power and honor and riches and glory and blessing. Look what it says in Revelation 19. It says, then I fell asleep, I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow slave with you and your brothers and I have the testimony about Jesus. Worship God because the testimony about Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What is prophecy about, beloved? Prophecy is God speaking to your heart that God's final decisive word about who you are in Jesus because what Jesus did can define and drive your life. So it's very important, beloved, to see that Jesus is God's final word and we don't need to know anything else. I got a word for you. Listen, that's great. But what defines my life is what God has pronounced over me in Jesus Christ already. I don't need more special ideas about me being special and going here and going there because I've been crucified. I've been resurrected. I've been seated in heaven by Christ. What you going to tell me? What's better than that? I've been raised from death to life. I've been seated with Christ in heavenly places. I've been given a new name. What can you possibly tell me about my life that's better than that? I'm going to get a new job? No, God in Christ is God's final word. And so the Holy Spirit is talking to us all the time in all these ways about the sweetness of Christ. He is his final word. All right, I have two more points, and I apologize for my length today. Hey, yo, I don't know if you guys noticed, I've been preaching 45-minute sermons a lot. So if I go over 45 minutes, it's an exception now. All right? Um, actually, you know what? What I'm going to do, what I'm going to do is, all right, do, do, I'll, give, I'll give you an option. Should I do my last two points, or should I just pick one of them? All right. You have voted. We're not Baptists, but we have just done a Baptist thing. We voted, and now we've tallied the votes. <laughs> and the vote is in. I will do two points. So how do we understand Scripture alone? It alone, it alone, in its law and gospel distinction. You're like, what the heck does that mean? Let me explain it alone in its law and gospel distinction. Let me read a text for you that will help. Galatians 3.15 says this. Brothers, I'm using a human illustration. No one sets aside or make additions to a human covenant that has been ratified. Now, the promise was spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He doesn't say and to seed as they're referring to many, but referring to your seed who is Christ. And I say this. 
the law which came 430 years later does not revoke a covenant that God previously ratified by God and canceled promise. So, so, the, so the false teacher is saying this. Look, in the Bible, Moses says, do this to be saved. And, and Paul is saying, 430 years before that, God said to Abraham, believe this because what God will do and you'll be saved. 430 years before. So he's like, oh man, like, what's going on with that? Well, he, he explains, why was the law given? It was added because of transgressions until the seed of the promise would come. The law was put into effect by a mediator through angels. Now, okay, for if there was a law that was given that was able to give life, then righteousness would be by law. But scripture has imprisoned everything under sin's power so the promise by faith in Christ might be given to those who believe. Before this faith, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. But now since faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. So Paul is saying, listen, if you, if you look at the whole Bible, there are two ways God speaks. One way God speaks is you must do this to be saved. The other way God speaks is you must believe what has been done for you to be saved. And they don't relate to each other. You follow me? When God says do this to be saved, it means you must do this to be saved and you must accomplish this to be saved. And when God says in another way to Abraham and to David, believe what is done to be saved, there are two separate words. We cannot see the promises of salvation to be mixed and matched with do this to be saved. They're separate words. And the problem is, when we read scripture, we mix them. So we read God's law, which says do this, and we say, okay, that's a gospel promise. If I do this, I'll be saved. But there's two separate words. Let me, let me illustrate this to help. Listen, here's a text. Matthew 5, 27. You've heard it was said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose your parts of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. Is that law or gospel? I'm saying, cut your hand off so you can go to heaven. But you know how people read that? Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. If you're not plucking out eyes and you're not cutting off your hands, you're not doing the things that will save you. But do never saves you. If anywhere in the Bible you see do this, mark this in your mind. That cannot save me. Why? Because it's a do. Do-do's don't save. Another text. Here, here. What, what is this? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They're justified freely by his grace through the redemption in Christ. What is that law of gospel? Because it's telling me what has been done. That can save me. Here's another one. Deuteronomy 6.4. Listen, Israel. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Is that law of gospel? Can, can you be saved by loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Can you become loving by hearing that command? No. You know what that tells me? That tells me what I should do. It doesn't tell me that I can do it. What about this? First John 4, love consists in this. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be propitiation for the sins. Is that law or gospel? Can that save you? Yes, because it's telling us what God did. Let me give you one more example. Mankind, he is Micah 6, 8. Actually, I'm going to skip that. Here, I hear this one a lot. Colossians 3, 5. Therefore, Put to death what belongs in your worldly nature, sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming on this being. And you once walked in these things when you live in it, but now you must put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, filthy language from lust. Is that law or gospel? Huh? Who said gospel? Put to death what belongs in your worldly nature, sexual morality, impurity, evil desire, greed, Put away anger, wrath, malice, slander. Is that telling you what has been done or what you should do? It's telling you what you should do. Can putting away wrath, anger, bitterness save you? No. So when someone tells you like, hey, you read that text, your hope for salvation is if you stop being an angry person, stop being a bitter person, stop being a sexually immoral person, stop doing those things and you'll be saved. Beloved, that's law. It can't save you. 
It only tells you what you should do before God. Here, let me read the other text. Colossians 3.1. So then, if you've been raised with the Messiah, seek what is above where Messiah is seated at the right hand. Set your mind on what is above, not on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with the Messiah in God. When the Messiah who is your life is revealed, then you will reveal with him. Is that law or gospel? Gospel. Here's another example. Take delight in the Lord. Is that law or gospel? It's telling you to delight in God. What about Jesus over his baptism? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Is that law or gospel? And so listen, if we, beloved, listen, if we don't make a distinction between the things that God tells us to do and the things that God has done for us that are received by faith, we're always going to be mixing and matching law and gospel all the time. And we're going to be preaching the gospel like we're saved by law, and we're going to be preaching the law like it saves us, like it's the gospel. Y'all follow me, or or, or am am I just talking in circles here? You must look at the whole Bible in this way. Law tells me what should be done, what must be done, but it cannot save me. It cannot transform me. Gospel tells me what Christ has done already for me, which can save me, which can transform me. I have these two categories that I'm always looking at. But the second you lose those categories, you lose gospel. And you lose law. I would say. So one more point. You asked for two points, so I gave you two. One more point. All right. It alone in its Holy Spirit and power totality. It alone in its Holy Spirit and power totality. Let me read a text for you in 1 Corinthians 2. I gave you a lot of texts, but I had no choice. Sorry. So we have not received the Spirit from the world, but the Spirit who comes from God, so that, so that we may understand what has been given to us by God. We speak these things not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. Listen to this. But the unbeliever does not welcome what comes from God's Spirit because it's foolishness to them. He's not able to understand it since it's evaluated spiritually. The spiritual person, however, cannot evaluate everything, yet he himself cannot be evaluated by anyone. You see what this is saying? Is the only way, how do we understand this book, beloved? How do we understand the words the Holy Spirit wrote according to that text? The only way I can understand what the Holy Spirit wrote is the Holy Spirit gives me the supernatural capacity to understand what he wrote. There's no other way to understand that. And the problem is, beloved, is that we want to try to understand the Bible by all these humanistic additions. Let me explain those. So it's like this. I'm not going to understand this word by the Holy Spirit supernaturally giving me the ability to believe it, but explain the word in a way which makes sense in my reasoning. So put God, I have, these, I have all these rationales and reasoning and opinions, so I'm going to get this by you making it make sense in my opinions and reasoning. Or we think like this, you know, I have these experiences in my life, and I experience this, and I experience that, so I'm going to understand this, by you making my experience make sense, this text. Or here's another example. Um, just, just believe it because I told you to. You know the stuff you do to your kids? You're like, why believe it, kids? Because I said so. So we're going to say, believe this not by the Holy Spirit supernaturally giving you the power to believe it. I'm just going to say, because I said so. Or, 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 or here's another thing that we do. We do this. We say, we're not going to get people to believe this by just preaching it and the Holy Spirit just enabling people to believe it. We're going to make it wishy-watery and water it down and make it sound fuzzy and warm and make you feel good about you, and, and, and then you'll believe it, right? But he's saying, no, no, we can only get this crazy book by a crazy God if the power of his Holy Spirit gives us a capacity that we don't have to understand it. Otherwise, we don't get it. Here's another one. This, this is how I'm going to get you to believe this book. I'm going to give you all these self-centered reasons to believe it. So come to Jesus because he'll fix your marriage. Come to Jesus because he'll give you a better job. Come to Jesus because he'll make you successful. Or come to Jesus because... So now you'll believe because I'm giving you self-centered reasons to believe. I suppose I'm just telling you to believe. Or here's another way we, do, we, we kind of deny this. Is, is we, we pick and choose what portions of Scripture will, will, will teach people, right? So when, when it says God's love the world, we, we tell people that, right? But when it says God is angry with the wicked every day, we don't say that. That's, that's Psalms 5. 
when Scripture says, you know, I have wonderful plans for you, plans, you know, Jeremiah, we, we say that to people. But when Scripture says, there is none righteous, no, not one, all have turned away, together have become useless, we don't say that. But beloved, the, all we got to do to understand this book is just preach the word and let the Holy Spirit enable you to believe it or not. I don't got to give you all these humanistic props to the word of God to get it. I just got to talk and say what God's word said and say, Holy Spirit, you can make people believe this or not, but I can't have any humanistic things to add to it. You know, there's this text in scripture. Listen, listen, listen to what Paul says. Listen, in in, in 1 Corinthians 2, when I came to you, brothers, announcing the testimony of God to you, I didn't come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I didn't come here razzle-dazzling you with all the self-help humanistic talk. I didn't come to you with all these categories of human wisdom and power and pomp. But I didn't think it was, um, I, I, I did not think it was a good thing to know anything among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my proclamation were not with persuasive words of wisdom but with a powerful demonstration by the Spirit, so that your faith may not be based on men's wisdom, but God's power. So listen, if you come to this church and you hear God's word, and that's the only thing that you hear, and you don't have all these little humanistic tricks to get you to kind of believe, you're like, man, why do I believe this? It's not because that guy... It's not because he's clever. It's not because he's dressed well. It's not because he's smart. It's not because he's witty. It's not because he's funny. It's not because his building is nice. It's not because they made me feel good about me. It's because God must have made me believe because I could not believe it any other way. So, beloved, why do we preach the word of God unadulterated, unapologetic, clear? Because we want people to be trusting in God's power, in the Holy Spirit, not in human ways to get you to believe outside of God's spirit. You say, man, like, why, 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 why do you guys say things so black and white and so clearly? And so because we trust that the Holy Spirit is the only person that enables us to understand God's word. It's spirit produce. So how how do I summarize this really long, full of Bible message? I would say, listen, if we're going to hear God's word, we can't tune him out like a guy, okay? So you know know how we're the guy? We're tuning him out, and we kind of tune in and tune back out. We have to listen to the voice. If we're going to listen to Scripture, we can't read Scripture like, uh, you know like the previews of movies? The previews give you like a two-minute clip. We can't do that. We can't get the Bible with our two-minute clip studying and two-minute clip thinking. we got to see the whole role of the gospel story and every text to understand it. If we're going to get this book, then we have to let God's law be God's law, God's gospel be God's gospel, and not mix these two things together. If we're going to get this book, then we need to stop looking for us to be the hero of every story, every text. we got to be in every text, every place, saying, Jesus, you're the hero, you're the point, you're the story. Let me think in those terms. And lastly, we got to let God's Holy Spirit be the only person by his power and grace to give us an ability to understand this and not make it understandable by some humanistic invention. So the word of God, you know, there's, there's a guy, uh, you, got, you guys ever heard of Spurgeon? He said the, the, the word of God is, is, is like a caged lion. All you got to do is, is let it out of his cage. So what do, we, what do we do with this? We let it out of his cage. So, so, so you got crazy kids in your house. What do you got to do? Let, let this word appropriately spoken out of his cage and let it do its work. You got unbelievers in your life who are broken and shattered. What do you do? I don't, I'm not a smart person. You know, I'm not a, a mature person. I'm not a this person. You just let the word of God out of its cage and let it do what it does. You want to disciple one another in this church? You want to invest in one another church? You're like, what am I going to do? You let the line out of his cage and do what it does. You know, and, and you and Lord willing, I hope the Lord gives a lot of great appointments where all these people in Homestead from Agape are going to be connecting with us. I'm like, what am I going to do this person? They're, they're telling me like, this is going on. And, and I, got, I got a drunk drinking pass and I got a drug pass and I got abuse pass. What are we going to do? We're going to unleash the line of the gospel word and say, God, do what you do because this is what we have to do what we do. 
Scripture by itself is enough. And so here is the full range of solas. God's glory alone, God's grace alone, and Christ alone, by faith alone, by his word alone, properly understood is the tools that we have to understand and convey the gospel. And what we're doing in the next four weeks is <laughs> more things, more things of this. We're, we're going to do the, the do- are you guys familiar with the doctrines of grace? We're going to do the doctrines of grace um, for four weeks. So hopefully, like, the solas were helpful for you guys. They were helpful for me. So let me pray and ask for worshiping to come up. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, that you have given us a word which speaks hope to sinners because of what you have spoken, not because of us. Thank you, God, that you have given us a word which tells us about Jesus' story from Genesis to Revelation so that our crappy stories, our wretched stories, can now be re-understood, re-enjoyed in Christ's greater story. Thank you, God, that all of the crazy things we say to ourselves and all the crazy things that we say to one another are not truth, but your word spoken as you spoke it is truth, and we can cling to you when our minds speak in sanity to ourselves and others. Thank you, God, that your word is enough. We don't need the opinions of men. We don't need the opinions of culture. We don't need family traditions. We have your word and you have spoken to us enough. So God, please, can you give us a capacity to listen to your word as a church? And when you allow this word to go beyond this church to others, not in this church. In your name, amen. That concludes our message, and we hope that you were inspired by it. If you'd like to hear more about the gospel or find out more about Reconciled Church Miami, please connect with us using one of the ways listed on our website, reconciledchurchmiami.org.